the text for our sermon tonight. Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of that city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Let us pray. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life, and may Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this night. May grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, through these seven midweek Lenten services, we'll be preaching on the cities of refuge. Tonight, we'll be on the New Testament fulfillment or, or application, if you will. We just read the passage where these cities are established. They provided refuge, as their name implies, for someone who had blood on his hands, but who had killed without malicious intent. There were six of these cities, three on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west side. Remember that God's original intent for Israel was that the whole nation would dwell on the west side of the Jordan River, in which case the Jordan would have been a border for the nation. But just before Moses died, Israel went to war against Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Their territory was on the east side of the Jordan. So when Israel defeated these kings, two and a half tribes of Israel asked if they could have this land. It was apparently good land for grazing. So the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were granted this territory on the condition that all their men of war crossed the Jordan and helped the rest of Israel conquer Canaan. They were allowed to return home only after the other tribes had conquered and settled the land of Canaan. So that's why there were some cities on either side of the, the river, because the land of Israel now fell on both sides of the Jordan. 
the cities were fairly evenly spaced out across the land of Israel so that the person who needed to seek refuge would always have one within a reachable distance and would be able to determine instantly which of those cities was closest to him. Proximity was important because there was a man appointed by the family of the victim who was authorized to execute justice for the dead man. So it was of utmost importance that the manslayer could get to the city before he was caught by the avenger of blood. The location of the cities made it easy for a man to pick one and get there quickly. Now the special feature of these cities is their names. All six city names are names that Scripture applies to Christ. And that will be the substance of the following six sermons. Tonight, however, I just want to put in place the New Testament application of this subject. There are three features that we'll look at tonight. Three questions we'll answer. Number one, unto whom? Secondly, for whom? And number three, for, for how long? Unto whom? Why am I saying unto whom instead of unto where? I'm saying unto whom because we're going to see that even in the Old Testament, the cities of refuge signified Christ as the refuge of God's people, refuge from the just judgment of God. When you fled to the city of refuge, you were, in a very real sense, fleeing unto Jesus. Before we go any further, let's verbalize something that, that should go without saying. The church did not ordain these cities. God did. This is God's solution to the problem of sin. And it's important to remember that because we're very prone to invent our own ways of coming to God and then getting upset when he doesn't recognize their validity. The cities of refuge were a real solution to a real problem only because they were ordained by God. Now, let's begin to look at the New Testament form, shall we say, of the cities of refuge. And the first thing that we need to do is acknowledge that the cities point to Christ. Christ is the refuge to which we run for shelter from the just judgment of God against sin. And that'll be more abundantly clear over the next six weeks as we look at the names of the cities. But Christ is repeatedly called the refuge of God's people. In the scriptures, we read statements such as these. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my stronghold. For you have been my refuge, a tower of strength against the enemy. I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. In Hebrews 6.18, we read earlier, it describes believers in Christ as those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Psalm 7 is a remarkable passage in this respect. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, but I suggest that you read the whole psalm. Verses 1 and 2 say, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me. 
and rescue me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is no one to rescue me. Here we find David running to the Lord for refuge from the avenger. There's no doubt that the cities of refuge are what this psalm is alluding to. The danger to which we are all exposed is the just wrath of God, and Christ is the refuge of God's people. A few moments ago, we sang the words, you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. It is abundantly clear that the cities of refuge were prophetic pictures or a prophetic picture of Christ. He provides shelter and refuge against the judgment of God. And before we move on to our second point, let's just consider for a second the notion of justice. The guilty man who took refuge was fleeing there to escape the hands of the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood was a person appointed by the family of the slain man to exact retribution for the sake of the dead. This would present us with a bit of a dilemma if we didn't know that the cities of refuge are a type of Christ. And since they are a type of Christ, the guilt in question, of course, is sin. We flee to Christ from, for refuge from the avenger of blood that pursues us for our sin. Jesus died to pay for sin, and therefore the guilt of our sin is the reason for the death of Christ. To be saved from the blood guilt for Christ's death, we flee in faith to Christ and are thereby rescued out of the hands of God's just wrath, which was symbolized by the avenger of blood. And that leads us to our second point. For whom? Within the New Testament application, it's clear that the person considered killed by the sinners is Christ. How can we say that with certainty? Well, the guilt that we're requiring refuge for is sin. And sin is why Christ died. So the question becomes, how can we say that the believing sinners who seek refuge in Christ are not guilty of the same intentional killing of Christ as the unbelieving sinners? It's a question that looks difficult on the surface, but upon further inspection is not all that hard to answer. The thing that we need to consider as we contemplate the cities of refuge and their New Testament application is the type of guilt for which they were established. According to the stipulations of Joshua 20, the manslayer who sought refuge must not be guilty of willful, intentional homicide. Now, let's think about this for a moment. All of mankind is divided into two classes. The elect and the reprobate. And likewise, all sin is divided into two categories directly related to that classification of people. All sin is either atoned for or un not atoned for, forgiven or unforgiven. There's nothing else. Christ died for all the sins of his people, and that is an important thing to understand. You know, most of us kind of labor under the misconception that our sins are not atoned for until we repent of them. Now, if that were true, then repentance would be meritorious. In other words, repentance would be an act whereby we earned God's favor. And that is clearly contradictory to the teaching of Scripture. Romans 5, 8 through 10, for instance, addresses this directly. It reads, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You'll notice that the text says that we were saved from God's wrath while we were enemies. If God's grace in Christ were contingent upon our repentance, then we would have already been converted to God by our own act before we received his grace. In other words, we would have done something to earn God's grace. And grace, by definition, cannot be earned. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. So it is not true that our sins are atoned for when we repent. And when we repent of our sins, we may come into a freer awareness of God's love because our hearts are no longer infatuated with what God hates. But that's just the natural result of repentance. Wet laundry on the clothesline does not merit the heat and the sunshine that dries them. Drying is just what happens when they're hung on the line. We don't earn God's grace when we repent, nor do we earn atonement. We merely become aware of it. All the sins of God's elect are already atoned for. Every sin that you have ever committed, are committing right now, and will commit in the future, is paid for by the death of Christ. Now, why am I harping on this so much? It's important to understand the real distinction that exists between the elect and the reprobate. The elect have no remaining guilt in the eyes of God. Our catechism tells us, God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. The elect have no remaining guilt before the tribunal of God. Christ's death atoned for all their sins. Now, the reprobate have nothing but sin remaining in the eyes of God. Their sin remains unatoned for. The bowels of hell are filled with those whose sins, like those of the house of Eli, God has declared, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. We are all sinners, it is true. But there is a world of difference between pardoned because of the blood of Christ and shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. All mankind is ultimately divided into those two classes, the elect and the reprobate. The elect are those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The reprobate are those God has eternally hated and condemned to judgment in the way of their sins. Christ's death has a different aspect with reference to these two groups. With regard to the elect, Christ's death is their justly merited death. Christ's death is atonement for their sins. He literally died in their place. With reference to the reprobate, Christ's death is their judgment. What Christ endured on the cross, the infinite wrath of God against sin, that is what they will endure in eternity in hell. The guilt of the elect has been washed away by the blood of Christ. The guilt of the reprobate remains. 
And that guilt consists of their refusal to repent and believe in Christ and their personal guilt for his death. He didn't die for them in the sense of dying in their place, but he did die because of them. It was their malice and hatred of God that cried out, crucify, crucify. Pontius Pilate, the the official representative of the world government, recognized that Jesus was innocent. Nevertheless, he turned Jesus over to be executed. The same world authority that acknowledged Jesus' innocence also condemned him to death as an innocent man. The believer who seeks refuge in Christ is not guilty of the body and blood of Christ. It is true that that Christ died to pay for his sins, but it is not true that he killed Jesus in the way that the world did. How can a believer be simultaneously guilty and not guilty? He can't, and that's the point. In 1 Corinthians 11, with reference to the Lord's Supper, Paul threatens that if an unrepentant sinner partakes of the supper, he is eating and drinking judgment to himself, being guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's not the repentant believer who is sinning against Christ's body and blood, that is to say his death, but the unrepentant sinner. And when that unbeliever dies, he will stand before God, bearing on his shoulders the full weight of his original and actual sins, along with the guilt of killing the spotless, sinless Son of God. Unbelievers kill the Son of God, not as a sacrifice for their sins, but as a victim of their hatred. And thus the unrepentant sinner cannot seek refuge in Christ. What we're driving at is this. The Old Testament types are not exact one-to-one parallels to Christ as the New Testament fulfillment. I think we all understand that. David was a type of Christ, but David was a sinner. Since the cities of refuge are mere types, we needn't argue a one-to-one correlation and insist that the sins of believers are less sinful than the sins of unbelievers. The difference between the guilt of the man accepted or rejected in the city of refuge was the difference between premeditated intentional murder and accidental killing. And all we're inferring from this is that there is also a qualitative difference between the guilt of the elect and the guilt of the reprobate in the eyes of God's eternal decree. The final question, for how long? The other stipulation was that the manslayer must stay in the city. If he ever left, he would be hunted down and justly killed by the avenger of blood. The rules stated that he had to stay within the city until the death of the sitting high priest. There's a really good illustration of this in an event that took place soon after David's death. Now, just before David died, he gave Solomon several assignments, and they were really about final house cleaning, I guess you could call it, of David's reign, so that Solomon wouldn't inherit a bunch of problems that David's reign had created. And among these assignments was dealing with a man named Shimei. Late in David's reign, his own son Absalom ran a coup d'etat against him. And rather than go to war against his own son, David, with his most trusted warriors and advisors, fled from Jerusalem and hid in the wilderness. And as they were fleeing the city, a man named Shimei, who was a relative of old King Saul, 
came out and started cursing and railing on David. Now, David had always been extremely cautious in his dealings with Saul. He took meticulous care to avoid doing anything that could be construed as harmful to Saul. And David always made sure that everyone knew this. He never wanted anyone to ever be able to say that he had made himself king. Everyone must know that this was from the hand of God. Well, Simei knew this too, but he didn't care. And he stood along the roadside shouting curses at David, accusing him of violently grasping the kingdom from Saul. And he threw rocks and dust at David and his men. Well, Absalom's rebellion was very quickly quelled. And when David was on his way back home to Jerusalem, Shimei came running out to meet him so that he could apologize. He knew that his behavior had merited a death sentence, and he was hoping to avoid it by groveling at David's feet. Here's where I'm going with this. When David was about to die, he ordered Solomon to execute Shimei for treason. But he had to make sure that it was clear to both Shimei and everyone else that this was his guilt. So Solomon ordered him to move to Jerusalem and stay inside the city boundaries. Solomon charged him strictly in the name of God that if he ever set foot outside the city, he would incur the death sentence that he had justly merited. Solomon told him, if you ever cross the brook Kidron, you're a dead man. Shimei acknowledged that this charge was fair, and he swore in the name of God to abide by it. But three years later, two of his servants ran away, and so Shimei left Jerusalem and went as far as Gath, about 22 miles away. There's no doubt that he knew what he was doing. He flagrantly disobeyed Solomon's command because he was not truly repentant for his treasonous actions against David. He was neither sorry for cursing David, nor did he believe that his sin was all that bad. He took the first opportunity that arose to slip out from the shelter that had been provided for him. The man who left the city of refuge was justly killed for his blood guilt. That doesn't mean that he, he had obtained salvation and subsequently lost it. It means that if he left the city of refuge, he didn't believe in the first place. He did not see the true magnitude of his own sin. And that's why he didn't hesitate to forsake the place of refuge. The man who takes cover in the church and then leaves the refuge provided is like Shimei. He's not repentant for his sins. He doesn't see his guilt as deserving the threatened punishment. And think about it. What would possess a man to leave who has been strictly warned that death awaits him the moment he slips from the cover of the protection of the city of refuge? Well, there's really only one reason why he'd do this. He doesn't believe that the threat is real because he doesn't believe that his guilt merits such punishment. Why would a person leave the shelter of the gospel unless he didn't really believe that his sins merit eternal damnation? Why else would a person leave the shelter of Christ's death unless he didn't really believe that he deserved the eternal wrath of God? 
A true believer, a sinner who is truly repentant, would never dream of leaving the city because he believes and understands the justice of perishing at the hands of the avenger of blood. This principle is fulfilled in the New Testament in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which I rather call the preservation of the saints. Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. I am and always will be a living member of Christ's church. He has purchased me with his precious blood, and therefore I belong to him. No one can snatch me from his hand. Jesus is my high priest, and he will never die. Hebrews 7 says, Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The cities of refuge, while being a picture of the shelter Jesus provides from the wrath of God, were an imperfect picture because the high priest of their administration died. Jesus, as the true high priest, will never die. And therefore, the refuge he provides is eternal. His is an unchanging priesthood. Those who flee to him for refuge would never ever dream of leaving the shadow of the Almighty. The soul who to Jesus for refuge has fled. Jesus will never, no never, no never forsake let us pray.